This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time at Core Brain Journal. And as you well know, we're interested in getting the record straight about what affects our lives, what affects our lives as children, what affects our lives as adults. And we have a topic today that is near and dear to everybody's heart. We see it happen every day. We see it happen in politics. We see it happen in the schoolyard. I know when I was a kid down in Possum Hollow, Dexter, Missouri, it was happening right there in the schoolyard in Dexter, Missouri to me, right there, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. So I can tell you right now, it's a very timely subject, and it's about bullying. And we have an esteemed guest here, Dr. Jennifer Frazier. And thank you so much for coming on board, Jen. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And so Jennifer is going to talk to us about her whole picture. She actually started as a in comparative literature. We'll talk more about it in a minute. But she has a number of issues about bullying that are going to really roll your socks up and down. So stay tuned. And when we get done, we're going to say a few more words about how you can get connected with her and different things you can get from that whole experience of knowing her. So before we get started, let me just say a couple supportive remarks from our sponsor. Corbrain Journal is sponsored by Great Plains Laboratory. They are deep international biomedical testing leaders for improved targeted mind science details that come straight from the laboratory. The laboratory thing has just evolved so dramatically. As both laboratory and webinar global thought leaders, They provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond what's so commonplace, guesswork, guesswork, guesswork. And they also provide multiple training webinars, this is an important point, for both the public and medical providers on how to use that laboratory data effectively in the office. They're thought leaders in this regard. So check out their website for references and testing details. I'm going to give you a URL here. Take note on this URL that I'm going to give you. If you register here, you can get a complimentary test drawing. They rotate tests every week as a working with us to help our guests. They want to support us in every way they can. We really appreciate it. And you can just look at and see what test is there. These tests range in price from like 219 bucks to over 300 bucks. It's a big giveaway. You can register and pick up something and find out what's going on with your, with your mind and body. So the testing site that you would go to is greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ for Core Brain Journal. Easy to remember, greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ. So let me take a moment to introduce Dr. Jennifer Frazier. She has a PhD, get this folks, in comparative literature, and is a researcher, educator, and published author. This is the title of her latest book, Teaching Bullies, folks, get this. It marks the moment when she became shocked and fascinated by your friend and mine, neuroscience. Ever since reading six years ago about the harm done to brains by bullying, which was actually recorded and documented on MRI and fMRI, she's made it her mission to inform teachers, coaches, and parents, all the caretakers, about the neurologic scars that bullying or emotional abuse does to brains, actually does it neurophysiologically. 
So Jennifer, we're really looking forward to hearing this. So let's get into how in the heck did you go from comparative literature, which would have been something I would, have, I would love to hear you lecture on comparative literature. We don't have time for it today, but it's an interest of mine. I did major in English when I was in college, so I was like, I was into it. But we're not going to be, obviously. But the issue is, how did you make that switch? What happened to you that you say you had some transformational moment in there? Well, it's um, essentially comparative literature is a discipline where what we do is we bring various discourses into dialogue. So in the book I wrote before Teaching Bullies, I drew a lot on psychology because I was looking at children's grief and I was looking at pedagogical practices and, and the way in which adults try to suppress children's grief. So mm. I, I would be able to draw on pedagogy, on psychology, on grief study, and interrelate it with literary work and have all of that come together. So in terms of a discipline or my research background, it isn't actually much of a leap to bring in neuroscience. It's just that I was thrown into an abuse situation at a school as a teacher, and I was shocked to find out how I didn't know anything about neuroscience. And it, mm. what amazed me was that how could I possibly be teaching children, working with children, and know nothing about their brains? I mean, it really shocked me. And then mm. since that time, I've been working with other teachers and principals and coaches and parents, and I get hired to come and talk to groups because... I mean, really, it's not making its way from the laboratory into the frontline workers with children, and that's where I really think I could be a great middleman. So completely true. I have a similar story in that regard regarding addiction medicine. You know, I'm fully trained, board certified, this and that. Seven additional years of training in psychoanalysis, and a heroin addict comes in, and I couldn't take care of him. I, I had no idea. He said, you know what the fourth step is? I said, no, I have no idea what the fourth step is. He says, well, let me, let me ask you a more germane question. Do you know what the first step is? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't answer that one either. I mean, you know, I had no knowledge at that point of the 12 steps. Anyway, so I'm, I'm with you on that whole point, and it's really quite interesting. So then what did you do next? Having, having had that whole self-awareness hit you, what did you do next? Well, what had happened to me at the school where I was working is a child had reported to his parent on text that he couldn't take it anymore. And he just repeated the language and it's, I'll dummy it down as best I can, but as he reported the bullying, he was being called an effing female anatomy, effing retard, effing embarrassment, effing pathetic, these kinds of things. Mm. And the parent called me. They knew me as a teacher at the school and they didn't know what to do. And so it wouldn't have been such a crisis except that it wasn't student to student bullying. These were teachers that were saying these things. Is they that right? They were my oh colleagues. Yeah. So I really, what I found was as I navigated my way through this crisis, I found that the adults involved, the administrators, the other teachers, they wanted to act as if it wasn't serious. That what was happening was, oh, you know, competitive sports, this is where the language was being used. This is normal in sports. This is trash talk. Like, why are you being so sensitive? And I thought, oh, maybe, maybe I'm too sensitive. You know, here I am, this literature teacher. Maybe I don't really know enough about sports. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe I don't really get it. So my way of coping with things, which I think we share, is when I don't understand something or I think I might be out of line, I go to the research. Mm -hmm. And when I hit that article written in 2010 by Emily Anthes called 
the dangerous science of taunting or the dangerous neuroscience of taunting. I just, and I started reading what the researchers had to say about what emotional abuse does to brains. I have never looked back. And I really, I felt like it was incumbent upon me with this knowledge, with my research background, with my ability to understand this complicated stuff and put it into layman terms so that all of us who work with kids can get it because we don't have time. Most people don't have time to research and look if they're working with children. They're busy. They've got 30 kids in facing them. They don't have time. Parents don't have time. So I just, when I saw the abnormalities, the withering, the actual killing of neurons, the damage to the hippocampus, the overstimulation of the amygdala due to this pump up of cortisol, I was horrified. And so I've been beating the, okay, coaches, teachers, parents, we need to know this stuff and as fast as possible. And it might not be perfect. Maybe the neuroscience is going to change. It's an emerging field. The technology is allowing us to see and do and learn new things every moment. That doesn't matter. We have enough information to know that any form of bullying and especially emotional abuse by adults is really harming brains. So true. And that isn't a skill set of mine. I don't have the information on that. In fact, I'm looking forward to you. I hope you send me the reference on that particular article because we'll put that in the show notes because I'm sure people would be interested in it after you've brought it up. Because, uh, And that's the reason I'm doing this right now is because I get to meet people like yourself who are deeper, more deeply into that specific aspect of it. You know, my whole experience has been more familiar with you get punched in the face, you have a knockout. I know which side of the brain, you know, I have the uh, whole brain imaging situation. I've done brain imaging for a long period of time, so you can see the, the reality of that. But the nuances that you're talking about, no, I wasn't aware of them. And I think it's really, really cool that you're bringing it up and talking about it. Well, there was a really interesting study done. It was very extensive. 2,000 children were examined, and I can send you all these references as well. They're all in my book. But it was Dr. Copeland's study, and he was, as he described himself, an unwilling convert because what they found shocked even them. And they looked at children who had been brutally sexually abused in childhood, children who had been brutally physically abused in childhood, and children who had been bullied. And so this is peer, this isn't even adult. And their brains had the same changes and abnormalities, you know, the same shrinkages. And they were shocked because, again, we have this tendency, and the, the analogy I use that hopefully this makes sense and maybe you can nuance it, but it's the same way as teachers and coaches, we used to handle concussions. A kid would get a concussion, we'd call it, oh, they got their bell rung. We'd send them back out onto the field to show yeah. how tough they were. And plus, you know, it was important. They could show that they could sacrifice themselves for the team, for the coach. You know, it was a badge of honor. Well, we now know, actually, concussions, if you put a kid back out with a damaged brain, you can't see it. It's as invisible as a brain scar from bullying. That doesn't mean that it hasn't done serious harm to the brain. Children can die. There is a law now in Canada and this is, this is how crazy the system is. There's a law in Ontario, so one of our 10 provinces, that you are not allowed as a coach or a parent or anyone to put a kid back in unless they get cleared by a medical doctor or an expert. And what about the other provinces? Are we not worried about other children who might be put back in? You know, we need to protect the ones in Ontario. The reason we protect the ones in Ontario because a girl named Rowan died. She was put back into a rugby game at 17. And she promptly died because she had already had a concussion and was back at it again. 
You know, and this is, this is where my concern about child safety is just, you know, alarm bells go for me. I work on this every day because we can't get the message out quickly enough. It's actually urgent. You know, it really is bully brain. I mean, I really, you know, it's interesting how you know, the story that you're talking about, and I think we're becoming increasingly aware of it because uh, some of the people we've interviewed, by, like Dr. Lewis, for example, is a very interesting guy who is a uh, medical doctor over in um, the Middle East. He works on the Pop Warner football, and he's, he's an advisor to their whole mental health uh, brain injury thing. And he had a very interesting set of comments at his, I, don't, I recommend him, I don't recall the specific one, but Lewis is, if you look, look at Lewis on Car Brain Journal, you would be interested in it. But I think more important is not so much the actual physical energy, but your point is this bullying has a detrimental neurophysiologic effect. And, you know, we used to think something like that was all psychological. We, you know, that's where, that's where my background came from. And if we could really, my original training was in psychoanalysis. You know, if we figured out that your mother rejected you, that's going to be the answer to the whole thing. When really you've had some really significant neurologic impairment. Very, very interesting. So then when you take that, what are the main, I mean, that to me opens such a large can of worms. I'm putting myself now for a moment in your shoes as you go out to speak to people about this. And I can imagine significant defensiveness occurring. And I can think people being defensive about themselves, maybe aligning with you in terms of kids with kids, but, you know, the school system itself being defensive and not wanting to get set up any criteria for whatever, uh, investigating and correcting these matters. What's your experience with that? Well, it makes me think of um, Thomas Kuhn's Scientific Revolution. And I know that's a book that you also enjoyed. It, I read it in university and I've never forgotten it. And I think we are in an exact moment like that right now. And, and you know, you, you mentioned politics. And I believe what's happening, and I've actually just, I've just finished, I'm in the throes of finishing the last two courses, I've created a system called the R8 system, and it's a very ambitious project that's a very, you know, Thomas Kuhn kind of project, <laughs> but I'm trying to say we have hit the tipping point, like bullying and abuse are really belting out their last horrendous, angry, raging events right now. Why? Because we actually are tipping. And I, I see the signs of it all over the place. And I think what we have to do now is push. We have to be those creative leaders like yourself. You're out there bringing people together to talk about topics that just aren't reaching everyone in the way it needs to. And this is a classic example. So the R8 system, what I'm doing is trying to say we've been trapped in a bullying and abuse paradigm for a long time. And when you say people are defensive, Oh, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> My book is called Teaching Bullies because what I really want to draw attention to, and I want to be brave about it, I'm not a perfect parent and I am not a perfect teacher. I have had times where I've yelled, I've said insensitive things. I've only recently learned that rolling your eyes as if a child is being ridiculous is extremely harmful. I'm an eye roller. I have a lot of sympathy and compassion for parents and teachers, especially teachers and coaches. I know what it's like to be under that kind of pressure and to be faced with 25 diverse needs in front of you, teenagers, etc. It's not easy. It's not an easy job. But that doesn't mean we can't take our brain map, our neural network that has been scripted and entrenched into our brains with bullying and abuse and the belief system that it actually gets results. We have to take that brain map and because we have limited cortical real estate, 
we need to work hard to shift it to empathy and compassion. And why? Because empathy and compassion in all the research, as you would know, and I, I'm a big believer in research, Dr. Sean Aker, happiness advantage, that's all neuroscience based. That's Harvard. And they can show you and prove to you and give you the number crunching. If you're worried about economics or academic performance or sport performance, they can show you. If you commit to empathy and compassion in your teaching, coaching, and leadership in your corporation, that's where you're going to see success. Apologize a little bit for giggling and laughing when you were doing the eye rolling thing because it's one of the things that I bring up in every single interview when I'm talking to somebody. You know, I'm asking them, I break anger down into four different subsets. Internal anger where you're not going to show it, and then I go right into nonverbal. Because I make, I make the point, if you're doing the eye-rolling thing, and when you did it, it just caught me because, like, here's somebody else that's into nonverbal expressions of anger. But I, I think it was made me a little uncomfortable because you're actually saying damage can occur from that, which is really refreshing and enlightening at the same time because it lends credence to what we're talking about every day. This is not mentally healthy. This is a manifestation of a person who's out of balance in some kind of pain and it needs to be addressed. And some of these folks that are doing all this, I would say some of most of them, are in fact damaged and hurting themselves. They do the business of managing the trauma by, from a uh, passive experience, they had a passive experience, they turn it into an active experience, and the whole uh, mastery through active re-experiencing then becomes the, the, the modality. But Thanks so much for sharing that. I apologize for, for laughing. It was a little inappropriate. No, no, no. Laughing is exact. I laugh at myself. So in the R8 system, that's exactly as what you've said is the goal. So I make the very difficult argument for rehabilitation. So, and the reason I make that argument, because I, what I find in culture, and if we, let's, you and I were talking about hashtag me too, it's a perfect example. And I actually, I was like, this is perfect. I built it right into the R8 system because if we look at Harvey Weinstein and the way we as a society handle abuse, imagine we enable Harvey Weinstein for 30 years. We facilitate his abuse. We look the other way. We see it and we just don't do anything. We pay lawyers to get rid of it and make it disappear. We choose not to investigate. We don't listen to the reports of victims who are very, very hurt. And then all of a sudden, Harvey Weinstein crosses an invisible line and then he becomes a scapegoat. So 30 years, we were okay with it, but he crossed that line. Then he's a scapegoat for all abuse in society. We pull out the whips and the pitchforks. We drive him away. He has to disappear as a human being with a massive amount of public shaming and disgust. And he's a monster. He's an animal. And then we believe in our very childish, primitive way as a society right now that the abuse is gone. It was taken away with Harvey. Harvey made it disappear. No! <laughs> my argument is, my R8 system is, you catch Harvey Weinstein, brilliant man, charismatic man, popular man, absolutely creative beyond belief yeah. at 22. Yeah. First time he messes with a woman at 22 or bullies some other person in his workplace, stop. It's over, Harvey. You are being held accountable right here, right now. Yeah. You've got to go get better. So we got six weeks for you. You are going to go to this intensive program. We're going to rehabilitate. We're going to build a new neural network for you so that every time you feel like defaulting to bullying and abuse, your brain's going to go, mm-mm, empathy and compassion. And if it doesn't, we're going to help you. We're going to work with you. We're going to monitor you because we don't want to lose you, Harvey. You're an amazing guy. You got a lot to lose. You got a wife, you got kids and a brilliant career. Why don't we do that? I mean, it's a compassionate thing to do. 
And it's understanding. It's saying, look, this is a problem and you're fixable as opposed to you're not fixable and we're going to demonize you and this is the end of the world. And in fact, we'll just take you out back and kill you. That is what I'm sure they did in, in when the hunters were chasing mastodons. You know, if you didn't chase the mastodon, right, we're just going to take you out back behind the tent and kill you because we don't have time for this stuff. That is a, a, a certain measure of correct. Now, tell me this. Pardon me for interrupting. I should have asked you earlier, but I was so interested in what you were saying. You're so articulate the way you say it. I mean, it's very, very interesting the way you say it. But is it the RA system? What, what is the system? It's R8, as in there's eight R's. Oh, okay, okay. So it's just, I'll run through them super fast, but the eight R's that I'm using in these eight courses to try and really what the course is about, and like I said, it's ambitious and maybe it's ridiculous, but here's yeah. my goal. I have these eight courses where I want the learner to enter in as a normal person, like all of us, um, well, not someone advanced like yourself, but in general people mm-hmm. are quite trapped in in the abuse and bullying paradigm. We've all grown up with it. We've mm-hmm. all had experiences of it. It's shaped us in various ways. It's in our brain in some form, and we are pretty shaky with it. We don't know how to fix it. So we have USA Gymnastics. We have Boy Scouts, Catholic Church, private schools, public schools. You name it. Our society, like hashtag me too, is just the biggest blow up at the workplace, but it's not shocking. It's rampant. It's rampant. Mm-hmm. So you come in, you're part of that cycle. The whole goal of the course, and I use as much neuroscience technique as possible. So I use audio, I use lots of visuals, I use lots of repetition in different contexts. So I here's one case study, I take it in another case study. Oh, we're learning the same lessons. We're firing those neural networks up again. We're building a new sort of wired in network that's empathy and compassion. That's the mm-hmm. goal. But so the, the eight R's are, it starts with research. So, I mean, this is exactly your argument at the beginning of this show. This is what Core Brain Journal is all about. It's about take the guesswork, get rid of it, stop with the mythologies, like debunk them. Let's look at what we can learn from psychiatry, psychology, and neuroscience because we have amazing information. So it starts with research. It then says to ourselves, look, we've got to re-educate. We've got to throw out a lot of our educational models on this and learn the material. Okay, so research, re-educate, then we have to reflect. It's got to be a self-awareness piece. We have to learn where we are. We can't go into dismissal and denial. We have to really do that emotional, painful stuff and figure out how do we fit into this. And that's been a real eye-opener for me. Oh, my goodness, the story I can tell you about that has been quite interesting. So research, re-educate, reflect on our own experiences, and then respect. We have to respect victims. And we have to respect perpetrators because they are the most extreme forms of our system that we're all trapped in right now. Until we walk away from this paradigm and start a new one, a new scientific revolution, and enter into empathy and compassion as our paradigm, we're all sticky with this abuse business. So we have to respect everybody. Mm-hmm. And then it's really, you know, we have to commit to social investment. It has to be how we relate to one another. And that's not a given. That has to be foregrounded in schools, corporations, sport programs. Every stakeholder from the littlest child to the oldest leader in the organization, they have to start every year. They might need to revisit once a month, but we have to foreground social investment, how we relate to one another. Everything else is secondary. What was the R on that? Sorry to interrupt you, Jen. What was the R on that? Relate. Okay. Sorry. So relate a relationship. And then we have to understand that rehabilitation is the only way we can do this. And it's for two reasons. Rehabilitate means we don't send a perpetrator like this young man, sexual assaults at Baylor University, 
Tevin Elliott, he's been sent to jail for 20 years. That's just an absolutely ridiculous thing to do to an adolescent brain who's been encouraged with all of the toxic environment he was put in by leaders in his world to commit atrocities, and then he's the one penalized for them. The leaders are paid out millions of dollars, and they walk away. It's, it, the system is crazy. So I want to see rehabilitation. Why? Because it'll save victims. 30 years of Harvey Weinstein victims could have been saved if we'd rehabilitated him and not covered up. Same thing with Catholic priests. If we had not covered up what was going on, we could have re rehabilitated them, saved them, etc., and saved victims. And so did we get all the R's? Is that eight? No, I feel I like one's missing. I'll go through them. Research, re-educate, reflect, respect, then the relationship, which is relationship, uh, and then rehabilitation. So I'm, I'm count six right now to seven and eight. Huh. Hey, we have to get the book. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> online courses. It's not a book yet. Oh, it's an online course. Good for how you. Can I, how can well, I now, forget my own? No, it's all right. Don't worry about it. It's eight is a lot. Let me ask you this question. Because, look, I see where we're going with this, and I'm sure our listeners do too. Jen, this is terrific stuff. You're so articulate. And you think about it, what, you really come, you, what you're coming at it with is a compassionate heart. And you have a – it's an overwhelming, in a way, overwhelming is perhaps a bit too, uh, whatever, excessive. But it's a really strong statement of, of a humanistic, evolutionary, humankind evolution statement as opposed to – this is good, that's bad, this is good, that's bad. The reptilian view that we talk about so often, and everybody's like figuring out what's good and bad, so if it's bad, we're going to punish it. The issue is what do we do about the whole picture? Even the nuances of the picture, which you're so articulate about bringing up, I think it's, it's really, really cool. And then what happens is we know where you're going to go with this. You're going to somehow reintroduce that person back into some meaningful existence where they can make a contribution. And I just use the word reintroduce because it's an R. <laughs> but the point is that I'm sure you're going in a place where that person is going to actually be reconnected with people in some constructive way. So that whole skill set that they have with whatever they were doing in their real life, which was really 80% of their life and they had this 10, 20% maladaptive thing, they could take that 80% and be, make the contribution they wish to make in their lifetime. Well, I mean, it's all a part of figuring out where does the maladaptive part come from? Throwing a person into a jail cell is never going to get to the heart of that matter. Really, it had to happen in the past. So, you know, I found it really interesting. I've been reading a lot about the Sandusky trial. Jerry Sandusky, for people who didn't follow the story, he was um, sexually abusing children at Penn State University. High-level administrators were informed they didn't stop it, which is very typical. Like, just when we want to lose our minds and say, how could that happen? That's exactly what I study. I study how these leaders, and they're amazing people, they've risen up through the ranks to these high-level positions because they're great. They're not the average Joe. They really are wonderful people. So how is it that they constantly find themselves in a position where they, they enable and cover up abuse? So this is what I set myself as. Mm -hmm. How does that happen? Yeah, and I yeah. heard a fascinating thing with Sandusky where the former president of Penn State University who's gone to jail, he went to jail for the fact that he didn't stop child abuse when he was informed, and you can imagine, and so did the athletic director and so did the vice president in the university. This has never been done before. This is a precedent-setting legal move on the part of the judge. So what I found fascinating about Graham Spanier, who was the president, is in the courtroom, he talked about how he had been repeatedly, violently beaten by his father as a child. 
Mm. And I just like, it made the penny drop for me. And I felt like, isn't it a shame that Graham Spanier had to share that in a courtroom as he's going to jail because he didn't protect other kids. You as a uh, psychiatrist with a psychological background, your knowledge, you would instantly understand someone who is carrying within them a traumatized child probably still has such a deep level of fear that they might not be able to speak up even though they're an adult in a highly powerful position, they still might not be able to blow the whistle on child abuse because it's too terrifying. Something's activated their fear and it Mm -hmm. freezes them. So fight, flight, or freeze, right? We see it all the time. What we have to do is learn as as a society to start having those very difficult, very emotional conversations with each other. Graham Spanier is a leader. He should have been able to talk about that earlier and set a team up around him. If this happens, this is my weakness. This is my vulnerability. You need to protect me when I freeze up in this situation. It's such an interesting point. And thank you so much for sharing that. I was just thinking about it from a slightly different perspective in that what he was doing is that he was reliving. Here's a person who is being disrespectful dogmatic, imperious, and lying, which was the uh, denial that was within his family. And so then what he's doing is on some level slips back into the denial. And it actually is a a certain kind of uh, distorted respect for his father, who he does love. And he doesn't know what to do with him because he's still trying to get his attention. He knows the man is important for the school and important for the family, metaphorically speaking. And yet he can't do anything because he's got this whole internal conflict about being on the receiving end of it. And should he be unhappy? It's sort of like survivor's guilt. Should he be unhappy about what happened? Or was, you know, this is anybody that's been abused has the same thing. It doesn't matter whether it's sexual abuse or bullying or whatever. Did I do something wrong? Was there something that I contributed to this in, in, in some maladaptive way? Now, listen, this is such a great conversation. I'm going to have to take a quick pause here. And what I want to do is ask you a question because we need to have another conversation. I'm very enthusiastic about your work, and I really think that your contribution is so exceedingly interesting and you're so articulate and so well-informed about it. I really appreciate that. Uh, When we come back, I'm going to ask you a question because this, and this is a big question that I'm listening to you. I'm thinking, boy, where do we go with this conversation? Because this is deep and so profound and so useful. So I'm going to ask for your advice when we come back. And the advice is going to be this. Uh, So I would say, Parker, tell me, here's what I think we should do. And here's what you should do personally. I'm happy to take advice from you. I told you before, offline, I'm, I'm into taking advice, okay, especially from a person like yourself. So here's what we should do. Here's what you should do, Parker, and here's what everybody should do. Here are some things that I think we should do, like now, first step. And then I think we should come back and revisit this for people who didn't get it or need an, a little more elaboration on what the nature of the problem is and what the nature, nature of the actual solution process is, which is really what I'm asking you about. What's the solution process? So we're going to take a quick break right now, and we'll come back and ask you that arcane question in just a moment. Today, the world of mind science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, predictability. Psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications, 
and our brief hospitalizations arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain-body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professions. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSight for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot, they get it every time. In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash cbj yeah that's core brain journal cbj so dr jennifer fraser that word arcane probably wasn't accurate because it's not really that arcane it's really very practical but it's odd because i i said so many things all at one time and that made it kind of mysterious and and enigmatic would be the word probably but there were two things that we were asking about what could you tell us to do and i'm happy to for you to tell me personally what we should do that's one question. And the other one, parenthetical and right behind that, is what's the system? And I know you can't tell me in this interview, so we're going to talk about it again because we're going to have another interview down the road. What do you think we should do as individuals and as a society? So it's me, individuals, and society. It's a large question. Take it wherever you want to, but let's, let's take a, a moment before we wind up. Let's talk about that, those topics. Well, the word you used, um, practical, is I think where my work comes in. I am working with a brilliant educator in Australia named Robert Palmer. He works with the educational professionals. He's written hundreds of hundreds of books for children. He's one of those people that has the gift for getting into kids' heads and getting them excited about learning. And so he and I have partnered because we are striving on other sides of the planet. So me in Canada... Robert in Australia, he's very connected to a team of international people. And we are trying to take the neuroscience as best as we can from an educational point of view and package it in such a way that it's practical. So that a teacher could go, a coach could go, a parent could go to a store, an early childhood educator could go to a store or online for a course and get a practical solution. So it's somehow what we're striving to do is work through the research, which is complex, not dummy it down, not make mistakes or neuro myths with it, you know, none of that, but try as much as we can to keep supplying a really solid piece of, of research, you know, peer reviewed and put it into an educational context that can be applied by someone frontline working. Not, it's not for people sitting in classrooms it's not for neuroscientists talking to each other or writing in their kinds of journals. It's got to somehow reach the people. And especially my passion is people that are working with kids because that's my practical thing is that one. Someone like yourself, 
what can you do you're already doing which is opening the doors up and allowing people to come into this rarefied world that they find intimidating and allowing them to know that it's not and that you even as a high-level medical person with the kind of training you have and the experience you have with patients you're still open and able to learn and I think that lets people sort of put down their guard and engage and bring out their curiosity that's the most important thing to do and I'm really honored to be a part of this conversation and to be able to speak with someone like yourself. So I think you're already doing the perfect thing. Well, you're very kind. I really appreciate it. But I was feeling the same way about you because I think the everything you said is exactly what my underlying mission is as well. It's the reason we do Core Brain Journal because if we can take that person out there who's driving the car in and has 15 minutes to listen to a podcast and listens to a person like you, and you think of that multiplied by thousands, which is what's going on, then you have a lot of people that start thinking more deeply about commonplace things that we have been, as you said, so articulately, taking for granted for so long because we're, we're still a primitive society. I mean, we're living in primitive times. It's amazing how primitive we are in just labeling human beings and treating them psychiatrically. I mean, it's like the 1920s and everybody... Friends, we had people land on the moon. This is 2018. We have discoveries that are absolutely remarkable, but we're working like we're in the 1920s. We're not really sure whether Sigmund Freud was right or not. You know, it's kind of lost somewhere back there in Do You Love Your Mother? And, and we got so many other things going on, but, you know, we're definitely on the same path and just appreciate what you said. So the next thing is you're taking that coursework so let me ask you a kind of technical question, if you will. And that is, what's the modality that you're going to do this? You're going to have a website and then people can go in and take the course. And you're going to have layers just like any kind of course. You're going to have a beginning, a middle, and an, an advanced course and how you actually put this together. Please tell us about that. Well, I'm not a big technology person. So this was a really large learning curve for me. But I realized that if I want to get the message out, a lot of people aren't reading books in the same way they used to. So I thought, okay, well, one thing you're really good at is reading books, reading them quickly, absorbing the information. Why don't you take all that information and turn it into something that's more interactive? So as I've learned from the people that I've worked with, I've constructed it on a platform called Thinkific. So it's the End of Bullying and Abuse Academy. It's eight courses. You just go onto the internet and you open it up, but... It's not textual. That's one form for the person that likes to read. It's textual. Mm -hmm. But for people who like to listen to video, I've taken every single textual lesson and turned it into short videos. So it's the teacher. So you've got the teacher there. I'm not perfect. I'm my teacher self. And I just get out there. I've got my PowerPoint. I walk the person through sitting on the screen. Mm -hmm. And I just allow them to to keep hearing. So they've got the auditory, the visual, they have the kinesthetic of me moving around, ranting and raving as a teacher, and they can, they can absorb and their brain can take it in on a variety of levels. And you know, a lot of the times working through this, these eight courses in this R8 system, it's pretty emotional. The way you described Graham Spanier and the denial and the love for his father and the humiliation as a child being beaten and feeling that it was his fault. I mean, you're holistic knowledge of what happens in the traumatized individual is mind-blowing but the rest of us don't have that and we need it 
We really need it. It shouldn't be just a private, I'm going in to see you because I was abused and I need a year to work it through. It needs to be more, you know, every teacher needs to know that model. Every yeah. kid needs to yeah. talk from an early age. Look, this is what's going to happen. Look at poor Green Spangy. There he is in the courtroom and he has no idea that's what's yeah. going on. You know? And so I think if there's any course that children should be taught and should be learning from the age of the beginning of school on, it is psychology and neuroscience. They need to know how their brains work. It's the most empowering thing in the world. Neuroscience for people who are perpetrators of abuse is the most exciting thing in the world because they learn they have neuroplasticity. They are not condemned to behave that way for the rest of their lives. They can change. It's the most mind-blowing concept. Well, the one that's parallel, I mean, I totally agree with you. And I've been um, encouraging people to think about uh, mediation training from the first grade because so much of what we do in that abusive scenario is we don't know actually know how to discuss things in a constructive way with a constructive purpose when something's out of balance, when it's in balance, and then what the beginning and middle of a conversation is and then how do, how do we all hold ourselves accountable to that agreement and where does that agreement go and all that sort of thing. I mean, mediation was a way that I kind of entered that whole thing. And I, I've seen a mediation take place with younger kids and, it, and that whole bullying thing. And I was really looking at it in the, from a somewhat reductionistic way because mediation was my window. And I really appreciate having this conversation with you because you really enlarged that window. It's really mediation would be part of this whole larger picture where people can really see the profound reality consequences that occur. That would be, and it's a, it's a medical model, which is refreshing in a certain way, because, you know, the thing is people say, well, you know, this is all psychology. It's all mumbo jumbo, you know? No, you started this conversation by saying, look, guys, the brain is damaged. This is brain Injury and the brain injury can be demonstrated. You know, it's and I think that's a great place to start, which would then be saying, okay, do do we want to cut ourselves? Are we going to go ahead and get upset and just cut ourselves on every time we have, or cut others? Are we going to just pull the knife out and cut whoever is there willy nilly? I mean, cutting would leave a damaged limb or a body or whatever. And the same thing we're doing with the brain. I mean, it's just so great that you're talking about this. And I looked aside just while you were talking about this. Friends, I want to make sure you get this link because she was talking about Thinkific. So it's at endbullying.thinkific, T-H-I-N-K-I-F-I-C.com. And that'll be in the show notes because that's something all I'm going to go over to it as soon as I can because it's so, so doggone interesting. And I think that's the beginning of a way we can pop open that barn door a little bit and see the light come in, the darkness that's really existing, the, the the pandemic of darkness, darkness that's out there regarding these absolutely ubiquitous. I mean, they're so commonplace problems. They're not like, oh my gosh, this is really weird. I mean, you, you said it very, very well. I mean, if you look at the gradations of just rolling your eyes to Harvey Weinstein, there's a large spectrum there, you know, and then of course, beyond the Harvey Weinstein is the person that pulls the Uzi out in Las Vegas and shoots a bunch of people because that's the end point that's further down the road where the person just went off the beam and it, it really hooks up with rolling the eyes in the first place. Okay, so what you've said there makes me want to say about 12 different things. I'm going to just try and say them in a kind of clear sequence if I can. One thing that I learned from Dr. Leanne Gray, she's a psychologist in California, 
she taught me empathy facilitation training. And it was a game changer for me. And it's very simple. And anyone can just try it right after this talk if they want with their family. The best time to try it is when you're in an argument with someone, especially someone you care about. And what you have to do with empathy facilitation training is, so I would speak and say to you, you know, Chuck, you really hurt my feelings when you said that you thought I was, my work was subpar and you thought I was stupid. And then I would continue and tell you more about my feelings. And you are not allowed to say anything. You can't make a joke. You can't respond in any way, shape, or form. You can't jump in. Nothing. You have to remain completely silent. But your job is to be able to repeat back to me every single thing I said in as close approximation as humanly possible. It's surprising how you can do it. So you actually don't have time to think about what you might like to respond because you've got to listen to what I'm saying because you have to repeat back to me. So mm -hmm. I go on, I go on, let's pretend it's five minutes. I pause every 30 seconds telling you about how I feel. And the only thing you're allowed to do is to repeat back to me. When my five minutes are done and you've repeated and reflected back to me my feelings and my thoughts and my words, I then say to you, okay, I feel heard. Then it's your turn. And you say, oh, when I said stupid, I was working through whatever. And I repeat back to you. That is one of the most surprising experiences a human being can have. And what, what really jolted me about it was, I discovered how much I don't listen to people. When I'm listening to someone talk, I'm really thinking about myself and my response. I'm not hearing them because I can't possibly have my brain do both things at once. So I'm not really tapping into how you feel or what you want me to understand because mm -hmm. I'm thinking about my response. Yeah. And, and I'm even thinking about things like making jokes because that's how we ease conflict. And yeah. anyways, fascinating. Okay, so empathy facilitation is one thing. The other point I wanted to make, talking about the way in which in the past we've been able to dismiss things and say, it's invisible, we can't see it, it's just emotion or feeling, get mm -hmm. over it has been you know, a really damaging way of behaving for a long time. The beauty of neuroscience is we can actually document now for the non-believers through technology. It is a perfect analogy to smoking and cancer. We couldn't see that cigarettes were destroying us on the inside. We thought they were glamorous and that they made us independent. And so it wasn't until the x-ray machine showed us that we weren't going to be the Marlboro Man and we were not going to be you know, the Hollywood starlets we actually were just going to get cancer and we could see the blackness on our lungs. That's when the technology and tons of cancer research made us change. We were like, okay, I'm not going to smoke because I don't want to die of cancer. And I'm certainly not going to smoke in front of my children and give them cancer with secondhand smoke. They don't even have a filter. No, thank you. Not doing that. So that was a huge cultural shift. I believe we are in the same turning point with neuroscience. The technology and the research combined can show us that actually emotional abuse is cancer. It's cancer for the brain. It attacks the brain in a cancerous way. And then, you know, one of the things that blew my mind was Dr. Vincent Felitti's research in the ACEs study. So he, in, in the late 90s, he's a doctor. He was working with these obese patients doing a study and trying to figure out the obesity epidemic. It's so awful, blah, blah. Well, lo and behold, what did he find out? They are all sex abuse survivors. So he oh started to realize obesity is simply a symptom. The fatter they are, the safer they are. No one, again, will violate them because they are protected is in this, this pushing away kind of flesh. So he started to research it like crazy with a team. He got a ton of funding, upwards of uh, close to 30,000 patients. They are able to show a direct correlation between childhood adversity, and they had seven different conditions, childhood adversity, midlife health crisis, and shortened lifespan, everything. Why? Because 
people who are abusing you would see this in your practice all the time or people who have suffered in childhood do things like substance abuse, they don't exercise, they throw in the towel, they become obese, they become alcoholic, you name it. They self-harm, they suicide. So you, it makes perfect sense when you think about it, but the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study is considered one of the most important medical breakthroughs of the 21st century. I can tell you right now, 99% of the people I know in my world, frontline workers with children, don't never heard of it. Never heard of it. I didn't hear it, yeah, I haven't heard of it. Listen, Jen. I hate to interrupt you because this is such an interesting conversation, but we're out of time. And all this is doing is saying we got to meet again. I'm telling you, this is good because this is so much fun talking to you. And I know the audience here, our listeners are just loving this conversation because you're so engaging, you're so bright, and you're so filled with great information. I mean, just like boom, 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 article, article, article. I mean, I'm sitting over here trying to catch up with it. I'm not going to catch up with it. So Whatever references you want to send, that'll be great. I'll include them in the show notes. But I'm inviting you right here on the air to another second episode of What Do We Do? Uh, somewhere in that answer of What Do We Do? And I just want to mention one more time the book Teaching Bullies. And I want to mention again her website, endbullying.thinkific.com. And there'll be some other links to other teachers, bullying, classroom tolerance, and all that sort of thing in the show notes. So this is Dr. Jennifer Fraser from beautiful British Columbia. And thank you so much for coming on board, Jen. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. It was honestly a pleasure to speak with you. We'll do it again, girl. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.